Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This is Save the Nation on ADH-TV, and I'm David Flynn. My guest today is a very significant person, Senator Malcolm Roberts. And the way that Senator Malcolm Roberts speaks, or the way that uh, he votes, is very significant, because I think you will find that uh, he does represent traditional Australian values in what he does. Uh, he has a Bachelor of Engineering from Queensland, where he, his studies included atmospheric gases, including CO2, and he has a, an MBA from Chicago where he learned rigorous strategic analysis. He's worked a lot outside of politics. It's so important that our politicians have a real working life. And not only has he been in mining as an executive, he's actually been down the mines and I think worked down the mines, if I'm correct. And to have somebody who's actually had... That's correct. Well, to have... A, you would be one... You, Senator, would be one of the few members of Parliament then who's worked with his hands, including Labour members of Parliament. Would that not be right? That, that's correct. There are very few people who've worked with their hands in, uh, in federal Parliament. A couple in the Labour Party who um, got their hands dirty with the TWU. And, and I, I mean <laughs> yes. that as a compliment. Uh, so... Uh, that they because because the TWU strikes me as being different from many, many of the other major unions, David. Because the TWU is also the largest representative of small businesses, and that's why the TWU has so much accountability in it. So, you know, that like any organisation, they go off the rails now and then. But the TWU, I've got a lot of respect for, and then we've got a couple of very good senators uh, who've come out of the TWU in the Senate, and they they have worked as workers. Well, that's so important because the parliament mustn't be filled just with people who've been politicians' advisers, that is, politicians in training, going straight from the university, becoming a politician in training and then becoming a member of parliament. You get a different view of the world because being that politician in training, I, I think the, the principal thing you seem to learn is how to plot, particularly on a on a portable <laughs> telephone. 
your, your. Uh, yes, you. Yes, continue. Yeah, you're, you're, you're correct. Um, and, and what they learn to do is how to look good, not do good. They don't know very much about management or about how, how to people, how people work and what turns people on and off. They just want to look good, grab the headline. They're very strategic in their thinking, but it's not about strategic management for the country or leadership for the country. It's about how to, to get their party to look good and how they in particular will look good. You're so right. In my preparation for this interview, I went back to your maiden speech. I think they now call it a first speech, but I prefer the term maiden speech. I think it's so much more elegant and lyrical. And that was where you uh, said that you'd learned how important empirical facts are. And uh, your studies, uh, since your studies are focused on earth and science and technology, you had tried in several ways, freedom of information, correspondence reports from the CSIRO, the Bureau of Mu Mineral Meteorology, the universities, to get data proving that humans' use of hydrocarbons actually affected the climate. You'd done all of this, you'd gone into this rigorous search to find evidence that humans caused climate change and you got zero from them. And you pointed out an inconvenient truth that from the 30s to the 70s, atmospheric temperatures cooled for 40 years straight. And you said the temperature today is now cooler than 130 years ago. And you said it's basic, the sun warms the Earth's surface, the surface warms the atmosphere, the atmosphere cools the surface. And you said that's basic to suggest, or to ask that the atmosphere can warm the, the surfaces, it cannot. Have you changed your mind from that time? No, I haven't. And I've done something since then, David. Uh, when I got into the Senate, prior to getting into the Senate, in 2016, I used to hold people accountable, people who are pushing this climate fraud accountable and say we're, and, and, and give them the evidence that shows it's, it's nonsense. When I got into the Senate, I had a letter prepared on Senate letterhead, my office Senate letterhead. And as soon as I was sworn in, I was legally a senator, I raced back to my office, signed the letter, sent it to the CSIR and said, where's your evidence? I want a presentation. And to cut a long story short, we had to track them down, chase them down, hold them accountable. We eventually got into a room together and they gave me a two and a half hour, three hour presentation. No evidence, none at all. So we had a second session uh, with the chief scientist. And in that, in that startling uh, first 20 minutes, he talked and talked and talked. And then we asked him a question and he looked at me, David, and I'll, I'll always remember this, um, Alan Finkel, Dr. Alan Finkel, an engineer, and he said, I don't understand the climate. I, I'm not a climate scientist and I don't understand it. And yet that man was running around the countryside <laughs> telling us we must cut our use of carbon cut our use of hydrocarbon fuels that produce carbon dioxide. And they went on. After, after we finished our interview, we, we, he went on around the country preaching about this rubbish. It's just lies. And, and so uh, anyway, we said to him, after he said that he is not a climate scientist and doesn't understand it, I said to him, I want a fair income presentation and a discussion, a real discussion for four hours. And he and Senator Sinodinos, who was the science minister at the time, agreed with me that that would happen. We scheduled a date. 
And then a little bit before that date, he was overseas. We were told he couldn't make it. Now, he, he did come back, but he didn't come back to do a presentation with us. So he got the CSIRO a second time. Still no evidence proving the carbon dioxide from human activity is, is affecting the climate in any unprecedented way, in any way at all. Uh, we had a third presentation, and, and I could go into the details of that, but it's just terrible. Um, they, they embarrassed themselves, David, uh, and, and perhaps we could explore that one day in the future. But I've, I've also chased people internationally. I've chased the, the head of NASA's Goddard Institute of Space Studies, Climate Studies team, Dr. Gavin Schmidt. He's got nothing. He even admitted in the course of correspondence, he admitted something that contradicted what uh, NASA has been saying for many, many years. And when I pointed that out to him, he stopped corresponding with me. Um, so, you know, I, I've, I've been all over the world chasing these people and no one will debate me. No one will give me the evidence that carbon dioxide from human activity is a danger and needs to be cut. And, and, and David, you're aware of how significant the, the cuts are to our economy. Um, we've had two natural experiments which might, which might uh, amuse your, or sadden your, your viewers. We had a, a natural experiment in 2008 called the Global Financial Crisis, and uh, the natural experiment was that we cut our use of human, carbon, human use of hydrocarbon fuels, coal, oil and natural gas, in 2009 recession, which was almost a depression, we went around the world. We cut our use of hydrocarbon fuels, which amounted to a severe cut in, in, in production of carbon dioxide, and the levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere continued rising. So what it shows is that we cannot affect the levels. So if we cut our, uh, cut our, our production of carbon dioxide, it won't affect the levels in the atmosphere. So it's pointless. That's the first thing. The second thing, we had another experiment in 2020 when the, when the COVID mismanagement struck and governments caused a near depression around the world again. And again, the use of hydrocarbon fuels plummeted, had a severe uh, effect on our economy. Uh, the, the production of human carbon dioxide plummeted dramatically, exactly what they wanted. Yet the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere continued increasing. We cannot affect the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and the science behind that is, is impeccable. It's very, very solid. Yet they persist in destroying our economy because the, 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 the aim of these people is to get control and to transfer wealth. That's all it is, and they use deception. Who was the, uh, I think he was a chief scientist who in the Senate estimates or other, some other committee of the Senate, when asked if we closed down everything, everything producing CO2, it would have absolutely no effect on the climate. Would it have, what effect it would have on the climate? And he admitted it would have no effect. Who, who was that? Do you remember? That was, Al that was Dr. Alan Finkel. And, the same and his Dr. words Finkel. were virtually nothing. Virtually yes, yes. nothing. And, 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 I, and I, was, I was there with Senator Ian MacDonald who asked the question. And, and um, he came down and, he, and I'd just finished arguing with Alan Finkel and Sinodinus. Sinodinus did what everyone does who loses an argument. He started, he started labelling me with, with uh, name and name calling. Uh, you know, labels are the last refuge of people who are either ignorant dishonest or fearful. And that's what, Ale that's what Senator Senadina showed as minister. But anyway. What were you labelled, um, uh, Malcolm? So, well, could, you, could I interrupt oh, you and ask I you? I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I get so many labels. A, a denier. Denier. You're, you're a, a you're, um, Malcolm, you're <laughs> a denier. 
I, I have never denied that the climate <laughs> climate exists. I've never denied that the climate varies. Mm. You know, anyway, that that's what happens when when they when they can't stitch together a logical rebuttal. They they smear and label. So anyway, um, I, I, as I was finishing uh, finishing the argument, normally we don't argue in Senate estimates. We just ask questions. But it got into a bit of an argument. Uh, Senator Ian Macdonald came in from Townsville and and he sat down next to me. He said, "Gee, it's good having you in the Senate, Malcolm." I said, why is that? And he said, because when they give us this crap, you bash it right back at them. <laughs> and, and so that shows you why they've got away with it, because so few, um, so few senators are aware of the basics, the fundamentals. But um, uh, what, what Senator McDonald then did, it, it was his turn, and, he, and I watched him on the video. I, I left the room. I watched him on the video. And, and David, <laughs> Senator McDonald, who's a canny man, he, he said... Um, so the question to, to uh, Dr. Finkel, what would happen if we cut all of Australia's production of carbon dioxide from human activity? And Dr. Finkel said, virtually nothing. And Senator Macdonald was not expecting that. And the look on his face was, oh, so what would happen if we cut it by 50%? And what he was trying to do, David, he was trying to go from 100% to 50% to 20% to 10% to see that nothing would happen. Mm. Uh, it was pointless what we're doing. But halfway through his second question, he said, and what would happen if we cut it to 50? And he suddenly realised if there's virtually nothing with 100%, there's no point in asking any more questions. <laughs> he was stunned. <laughs> Just the look on his face, I'll always remember that. That's He's wonderful. He's a good man, Ian. Yes. Well, uh, there was a cartoon recently by Johannes Leek in The Australian. It showed these people looking very miserable. They're sitting around the, the dining room table looking very, very unhappy. And they say, and the, what the man is saying to the family is, if renewables get any cheaper, we're stuffed. <laughs> if renewables get any cheaper, we're stuffed. <laughs> And that's what's happening, isn't it? We're being told renewables are cheaper, but then our electricity prices, are, as they put in more renewables, the electricity prices go up. That's right, because, because there are so many subsidies with the, I don't call them renewables, I call them what they are, solar and wind. Mm. Um, I used to call them unreliables, but people didn't know <laughs> what I meant. But they, they're not renewables. Every, the only thing renewable about solar and wind, David, is that every 10 to 15 years they have to be replaced. Mm. The, the solar panels exhaust uh, and become inefficient. The, um, the, the wind turbines uh, have a limited life. And so over the life of one coal-fired power station, you'll have three sets of uh, solar panels and three sets of wind turbines, uh, maybe four. And so that's what's renewable about these mongrel things. But um, the, their uh, solar and wind uh, can only exist with subsidies. They're highly inefficient. They're very low energy density. Uh, they're very expensive in terms of capital costs. And they need so many other things to work. To provide uh, reliable power, they need huge battery capacity, which is not available. Um, and they also need uh, expensive um, firming factors because they're unstable. Their power supply is unstable. It's asynchronous, whereas coal and hydro and nuclear are, are stable and synchronous. So there's nothing going for solar and wind apart from very remote locations when you can't connect to the grid. They're expensive, unreliable, unstable, insecure. Um, and they're environmentally very, very dangerous and very, very damaging. The other thing that's happened is that the, with the safeguard provisions, there is now going to be a fine on people 
who use coal-fired power. That's basically it. And a coal-fired power station will be paying a fine. Not only does solar and wind get a subsidy, but coal-fired power stations get a fine put on them if they don't if they don't make certain cuts. And of course, they can't make the cuts. But the the all for nothing, David, because there's no evidence anywhere in the world that carbon dioxide from human effect, human activity affects the climate and needs to be cut. And they're also reducing the amount of food producing land because they're in places where there used to be farms and they're cutting swathes, for example, through the national park at Kosciuszko to provide the transmission lines that have to go through forests and so on. So they, they are very anti-environmental and against the, the fact that we are a great food producing nation and we shouldn't be occupying land in valuable food producing areas just for these uh, wind farms and so on. You're absolutely correct. You know, if, if you want to build a house, good luck. You, you won't be able to get permission to chop down a tree. If you want to build a mine, if you want to build a, a commercial establishment, you won't get it, uh, permission to do it. But if you want to build a solar panel uh, or solar, I don't call them solar farms or wind farms because that's a cute word that they have used deliberately to, to sanctify these things. There's solar monstrosities, there's wind turbine complexities. They're hideous. And, and there, are, there are significant carcinogenic chemicals that leach out of solar panels. Uh, and, and they get into the soil, they sterilise the soil, they wash into the creeks. And in Brisbane, we've got a creek uh, where they're planning on building one of the world's largest solar complexes near a creek which flows into the Brisbane River, which then flows into the, the uh, water supply for about two and a half million people in southeast Queensland, including Brisbane. So cities like Toowoomba can access that water, Gold Coast can access that water, uh, Beanley, Bow Desert, Ipswich, all use that water. And we, we, if they build those panels, uh, build that solar complex there in that catchment, not only will they be subject to floods, which they have not planned for and have not modelled, They'll also be subject to leaching. And, and David, they're in a major a storm belt, which, is, which means it's prone to hail and damaging, direct damaging. But these, these chemicals leach out even when the, with an intact panel. Uh, but with the hail, they certainly just get flushed out. So we have got a, a... What we're doing is we're sending our coal, which is the best in the world, to China. China generates electricity with it. Since after we've after we've shifted thousands of kilometres over land and water and land, they then sell that electricity for eight cents a kilowatt hour. We take the coal, the same coal, and we burn it at the at the at the at the mine, virtually on next right next to the mine. So there's no transport costs, and we produce that that power for 25 cents a kilowatt hour, which is three times as much as the Chinese. Same coal, no transport, and and the reason for that is because of the subsidies to solar and wind. And the significance of that is that apart from cost of living and inflation right now that, that's driven largely by the government, um, including the high cost of electricity, electricity is nowadays the number one component of most manufacturing facilities, number one. So that means that China has got a, a one third the cost of electricity that we have using our coal. So they are, that's why they're so strong in manufacturing. Labor is not a huge component of manufacturing anymore. Um, electricity prices are. So what we're doing is we're exporting our fine coal to China, we're subsidising our wind and solar here, driving the price of our electricity up. 
We're then shutting manufacturing plants in this country, shipping them to China where, where they can re-establish with low, low electricity. So we're increasing dependence, we're decreasing our security. So every which way, we're, families are paying higher costs, manufacturers are paying higher costs, we have less, less, we are more dependent on other countries. We are no longer independent like we used to be. Uh, and, and we're destroying the fabric of our society. It's, it's just insane. And we've got no security on our, on our manufacturing sector. And we're doing this to appease uh, the globalists in, in Geneva, New York, in the World Economic Forum and in, in the United Nations. Surely the majority politicians... All based on no evidence. Surely, Malcolm, the majority politicians you're an exception. But most of the politicians should surely realise this. They must know that uh, the communists uh, don't treat their promises about cutting back on their emissions seriously because they're bringing in so much coal into China and they're, they're obviously planning to use fossils for many years. Uh, but also, why do the politicians, when they choose renewables, and I accept your criticism of the term renewables, but that's the term they use, when they select renewables, why do they only select those that profit China, that is solar and hydro, and they reject, so not hydro, solar and wind, solar and they wind. reject solar and they reject, uh, they, reject, they, they reject hydro and they reject nuclear. Why do they reject nuclear and hydro? Because they won't build dams. The present government's withdrawn funding for dams, the few dams that the Morrison government was going to build. Why do they reject those forms of renewables? Because the subsidies are a big part of what's happening. With the, with the United Nations, if we look at their, their significant drivers of, um, of catastrophe, the, the catastrophes they've made up, the COVID catastrophe, uh, COVID's real. I, I certainly agree to that, but it is nowhere nearly as, as significant as it was first made out to be. They, they told lies about that. I, I got the data from the, um, the chief medical officer and his data and his graph betrays it as low to moderate in severity, not high severity, low to moderate. And, and the severity is less than some past flus. So that's the reality, that's the truth. It was no more than a flu, certainly nothing more. Uh, and it should have been managed properly rather than deceitfully. But the, the point is they could just, just on that, just on that if that. I can interrupt you, shouldn't they have concentrated on those most susceptible, principally the aged? Exactly, exactly. and and. And why did they withdraw a proven, safe, effective, affordable, accessible um, treatment and a prophylactic that prevents transmission in ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine? They, they banned them. I mean, doctors in this country, very, very capable specialists and others in this country and GPs took it upon themselves to research themselves before the coronavirus, the COVID virus hit this country because they wanted to be upfront with their patients and get on the front foot. And they came to the conclusion that ivermectin was, was wonderful. Uh, I've taken ivermectin for another condition that I had when I came back from India with a parasite um, and it, it cured, but no side effects. Very, very few people have any side effects from ivermectin and it works. It's safe, 
It's proven over 4 billion doses over 40 years. It's affordable. And, and so what they, the government did was withdraw that. So they should have actually increased the supply of ivermectin. Instead, they withdrew it and punished people for using it. So they, they withdrew a drug. They brought in uh, provisionally approved uh, injections, which are new technology, were not tested. Jo John Skerritt, the uh, former head of the TGA, uh, admitted to me in, in answer to my questions in Senate estimates in February that they never looked at the patient level data on these injections. Never looked at it. They never even had it. And, and I can feel myself getting angry now. But uh, the, then he said, he said to me, the reason we didn't look, look at it is because we relied upon the Food and Drug Administration of America. And, and uh, the Food and Drug Administration of America has, uh, what were his figures now, 15,000 employees and $8 billion in, in um, budget. So we left it to them. Well, the Food and Drug Administration, before, the same, before Professor Skerritt spoke, Food and Drug Administration had already admitted that they did not check the patient level data. They relied upon Pfizer's trials. And now we see peer-reviewed papers going in to have a look at Pfizer's, Pfizer's trials and founding huge danger signals. And, and, and so what we've got is COVID, invisible, and doctored and lied. We've got climate, invisible, doctored and lied, both aimed at transferring wealth from people, everyday people and both aimed at controlling people. The, the driving force behind climate and COVID are both control. The money, money system in, in our country and in most countries is, is based upon, uh, as the Reserve Bank Deputy Governor Guy DeBell at the time said, electronic data entries. They just conjure up the money. That's where, that's where the banks get it from. They just, they just conjure it up on electronic data entries. But David, the other thing that, that's uh, invisible and inhuman is, is that they have wrapped COVID and climate claims and climate fraud around the perception that humans, and they've been working on this from the Club of Rome since the 60s, that humans are irresponsible, uncaring, greedy, rapacious, uh, and just should be controlled. And that's far from the reality of humans. Humans are wonderful, caring. You would not be here today. I would not be here today if someone hadn't cared for us. When we pop out mm. of our, our, our mum, we're only about so long we're completely vulnerable. Human, the, the key characteristics of humans is care. Now, not all humans are like that, but the majority are, the overwhelming majority are. And what the UN is doing in the World Economic Forum, they're telling blatant lies to conjure fear so that people submit to their, their control and their wealth transfer. So what we've got is, to, that's a long story, but the, what we're getting is then they have to get people on board. So then they, they get prominent globalists and elites and give them billions of dollars in subsidies for hydrogen, billions of dollars in subsidies for solar panels, billions of dollars in subsidies for wind turbines. So the elites make a lot of money out of it and they're not going to turn that down. Now, the Labor Party and the Liberal Party, there are many, many sceptics in both those parties and the National Party. And, and they have walked up to me after I've spoken strongly against this climate fraud. They have walked up to me and said, good on you, Malcolm, keep going. And they mean it. They really mean it. The Labor Party will not dare speak up. I know strong sceptics in the Labor Party, but they, they don't dare speak up. And I know strong sceptics in the Liberal Party. But the difference is that some of them do speak up. Jared Rennick, Alex Antic, they speak up. Um, so w that's the difference. There are a lot of, lot of senators and a lot of MPs who don't believe this rubbish, but they, are just, they just won't speak up uh, apart from a couple of Liberals. 
Should there be a royal commission into what happened under COVID, do you think? Oh, most definitely. You know, in, in one of my early sessions in the COVID time, I think it was around about March 2021, just before the injections were released, I asked the chief medical officer and the head of the Therapeutic Goods Administration, are they 100% safe? And the immediate answer was no, they are not. Second question, will they stop someone getting the virus? No, they will not. Will they stop someone transmitting the virus? No, they will not. So that nonsense about get your injections other, so that you can visit granny, otherwise you'll kill granny, was complete rot. And we know that they're not, they're not uh, they've now, Pfizer's now admitted that they, that they don't stop transmission. Then the last question I asked in, in the brace of four was, what dosage will you be administering, administering the vaccines, the injections? And they said, I said, how many injections? They said, we don't know. So they don't know the dose. They know that it's not effective. They know that it, that it won't stop transmission. And they know that it's not 100% safe. There's, there's no benefit from these things, none whatsoever. And in fact, efficacy goes into negative after some time with these in, people who've, who've had these injections because it destroys the immune system. So we need that. But then we had Scott Morrison lying repeatedly on, on, on TV saying that there are no injection mandates in this country. That was a blatant <laughs> lie. Scott Morrison bought the injections. He gave them to the states. He then indemnified the states for their use. He then gave them the access to the national health data, which enabled the, the injection to be mandated, because otherwise the states couldn't have, couldn't have enforced the, the mandates. And then we had the state premiers at the same time telling us that the reason they wanted mandates was to comply with the national cabinet. Well, the head of the national cabinet, which is a bogus entity, as you know, um, was Scott Morrison. So Scott Morrison drove the whole thing in this country drove everything and then he then he gave lots of money to taxpayers money to the states for lockdowns and other other uh, inhuman restrictions ineffective and, and damaging restrictions that, that weren't effective in managing COVID. so it's completely mismanaged it was deceitful it killed thousands of people we now have um 30, excess deaths for the year 2022. 30,000 plus, could, more higher than that. Malcolm, could I interrupt you? Could you explain yes. to viewers what an excess death is? Yes. Uh, every year in Australia, there, there are an expected number of deaths. And they vary slightly, but mm. because no two years are identical. So that, there'd be slight variation. So that's the expected level of death. And there's a range above and below that mean. So it varies like this. Okay. So if it goes up to that range, that's expected. If it comes down to that range, that's expected. But when it's up here, that's excess. That's excessive deaths. And, and what we know is that the provisionally, provisionally approved, provisional, provisional death data shows an excess of 30,000 or more excess deaths. That's the equivalent of a major wide-body jet, the 787 Boeing 787 Dreamliner, crashing two of them every week for a year. If one of those things crashed, David, there would be an immediate investigation, a, mm. high, a very thorough investigation. If two crashed, the same. If two crashed every week, there would be a huge fuss. But th these, these people and the head of the th TGA, the head of the, the chief medical officer, the... Um, the, the Fed, Fed, Secretary of the Federal Health Department, they don't give a damn. There, there's no inquiry going into what's causing these excess deaths. We know. 
we know from overseas experts, we know from peer-reviewed scientific papers, that it is the injections causing these deaths. And an and alarming level of deaths. But they, they just don't seem to care at all because I think they're worried about being found to be culpable for the injections that they have pushed on people and killed people with. This is misfeasance. There's no doubt in my mind this is misfeasance. Yes. I was asked uh, at a meeting, it was uh, had to do with the Republic, but uh, it was a meeting with a, an assistant minister and one of his advisers asked what I thought about having a royal commission. This was when Labor was talking about a royal commission. And I said, well, it really depends on whom you appoint. And I do think you really need to, if you're going to have a royal commission, you should have a royal commission with at least three judges and they'd have to be strong judges like, uh, and, and across the spectrum, like Ian Callanan, for example, um, judges of quality, Michael Kirby on the other side, and uh, some, you'd have to have a very good royal commission to do it, to do a, a thorough job on it, but there's not going to be a royal commission because I think both major parties are up to their necks in it. Well, there has been a change recently in the Liberal Party uh, to some extent. I tried to get the um, copies of the Pfizer contract released from uh, when Scott Morrison was Prime Minister and the Liberals said no. But Senator Alex Antic, I think, uh, who does good work, he, he uh, moved a motion uh, requesting the contracts off the Labor Party government, now that they're in power, and the Liberals and the Nationals supported the, the uh, request for the motion requesting the, um, the, the documents be released. The Labor Party, the Greens, Pocock, who's a Teal, uh, and then they formed the government in the Senate. The Teal, Pocock, the Greens and the Labor Party. And they all worked together very, very closely. Uh, and Jackie Lambie, I think, joined them. And um, they voted down the release of uh, the Pfizer contracts. Well, what's to hide? They're no longer commercially and they're no longer commercial in confidence um, because they're, they're well and truly uh, underway now. There's not, nothing to be lost um, except the truth. But I think probably a better step, David, would be to go for a Senate inquiry as the first step uh, because it's easier to get one of them. Uh, and, and then from the, what we learn in the Senate inquiry, develop the terms of reference. Now, the Labor Party, well, I moved a motion recently into into that and uh, um, it was narrowly defeated but sorry no that was a matter of public a matter of um, public importance that I, I moved sorry it wasn't a motion matter of public importance that I moved so it's not binding in any way but every party spoke ultimately in favor of um, of uh, an inquiry as as being needed uh, the Labor Party spoke in favour, uh, Senator Marielle Smith spoke, and it was significant because she doesn't normally speak on this topic, um, and she's clean. So they gave her, I think, that, that role to do that. Uh, the Greens uh, voted against my matter of public importance, but they said that when the states have finished their inquiry, they could support an inquiry. Uh, so the Nationals, the, the, uh, Lab the Liberal Party, uh, One Nation, Ralph Babette, all voted in favour of the matter of public importance. Um, so, so the Senate, the Labor Party has also part of its election platform was to have a royal commission into this, but they're saying it's too early. Well, the World <laughs> Health Organization has said COVID's over. You know, and that's a lie. But COVID's not over. It's going to be with us forever. But it's it's gone away as a as a um, uh, as a as a crisis, a catastrophe, uh, a source of immense fear. 
conjured fears. So I think it's perfectly uh, appropriate to have an inquiry. Start in the Senate with a Senate inquiry because the Senate can call anyone, as you know. Uh, we can get the facts on the table and then have a Royal Commission, as you said, with three really solid judges. Yes, a but Royal I, uh, I Senate David, inquiry would be a said, good idea. I, do, I think you're right. Yeah. That's, uh, Senator Rennick and I have been discussing that and, and we can see, I, th I think Jared's right in that um, the Royal Commission, as you know, as you're at pains to point out in, in, by implication a few minutes ago, um, a Royal Commission can be constrained by the government of the, government of the day that, that um, empowers the Royal Commission with the terms of reference and selects the judge. So I think, it, you know, you, you said something a minute ago that, that's pretty significant. You said get someone like Justice Callanan, and then from the other side, we get someone like Justice Kirby. Now, I, I think we've got to be very careful about that kind of thing because we should be just getting judges who are respected by both sides of, of the debate uh, so that they are seen as impartial and, and do a thorough job. Now, it's going to be difficult to get a, a judge like that because I think probably most of the judges have been injected. And so they're going to be, going to be predisposed one way or another. But I think, you know, I don't know Justice Kirby, I do know Justice uh, Callanan. Uh, he's a fine man and uh, very impartial from what I can work mm. out. So there are, there are good judges there and we, we need to make sure that they are appointed to this uh, Royal Commission. Yes. I, I'm sure both of them would be good on a Royal Commission. When I said from the other side, it's obviously that uh, Michael Kirby is from the more, shall we say, progressive side and Ian Callanan was the appointment made when the nationals particularly insisted on a conservative being appointed. But judges obviously sometimes have a background which is impossible to yeah. ignore in the same, same way as uh, governors general and governors and uh, even, even the king. The king has a background in some of these matters, but uh, he has uh, he's managed to go over that, I think. But shall we go to another matter and that... Uh, yes. Can we move can, can to... Can I just... Can yes, I certainly. just... Uh, certainly. I'm, I'm, I'm in an argumentative mood, I never <laughs> use the term progressive with these people because they're highly regressive in what they're doing. They're taking civilization backwards. So, and, and, and I, I, I'm, you know, I respect you enormously, so I'm, I'm doing it in, in good fun, of course. But um, I think the language uh, used by the socialists and the communists that are driving the UN, the World Economic Forum, has been a deliberate weapon that they've used. They've, they've conjured up wonderful terms, pleasant terms of people. I mean, how can you argue with sustainability? You know, and, and you can't. I can't argue with sustainability. The only thing I can do is argue that what they're espousing as sustainable is not sustainable without subsidies. Therefore, it's not sustainable. So, but we've got to be very careful in using their language because it endorses what they're saying. So. I don't see socialists and communists as, as progressive. I see them as regressive. Yes. Oh, I agree with you about words. For example, everything's referred to as a reform. And sometimes I think this is really a regression, not a reform. And the same way in which uh, people have gone along with the change of the word from sex, which is something you're born with, to gender, which is a matter of choice. And in official forms now, you find gender rather than sex. And I thought gender was a grammatical term when I, certainly for most of my life. And uh, it's being used to promote the idea that uh, one can by choice become uh, a, a, an athlete. If you're a, 
a male become an athlete and play in women's games and that sort of thing. But uh, I wanted to go on if it, I... It's like putting lipstick on... <laughs> Sorry? Yes, continue. It's like putting lipstick on a pig. It's still <laughs> lipstick. It's, it's, it's still a pig. I mean, if you put lipstick on a man, on a man he's still a man. Yes, exactly. If you, if you, you know, if you, if you cut off the testicles of a, of a male dog, it's still a male dog. Yes. <laughs> so, um, yes, we're born with sex. Crazy. Uh, shall we go on to a particular matter? And that was your questioning of uh, General Campbell. And could you explain the context oh, yes. of that? Certainly. Um, General Angus Campbell is the Australian Defence Chief, um, and he has a very significant position, of course. Um, he, he initially, before Peter Dutton became Defence Minister, um, Angus, Angus Campbell, General, Took, threatened to take away the, the Distinguished Service Cross decorations from many people in the, 3,000 people, I think, in the SAS. Uh, and um, there was a heck of a hullabaloo about that. Now, what it turns out is that one of my staff did some research, very, very capable young, young man in, in our staff team. And he found out that General Campbell, who was trying to take the Distinguished Service Cross off people formally under his command, um, has a Distinguished Service Cross himself. So that means that if you take it off the people at the front line, then you take it off everyone in the hierarchy because they're responsible ultimately. That's the way the chain of command works. So here he is wanting to take, formally wanting to take the Distinguished Service Cross off these 3,000 people without a trial, yet retain it himself. That doesn't wash. But then when you dig a little bit deeper, we find out that General Campbell got his Distinguished Service Cross for a period up to 2012, I think it was, up to the 12th of December 2012. I, I can't remember the exact year, but it was t December 12th. To get a Distinguished Service Cross under, the, under, that, under the law at that time, you had to be in action, direct conflict in action. We know that there have been freedom of information requests on General Campbell's uh, qualifications for that because the freedom of information requests have come back saying he has never been in direct action in that period. So he was not entitled to the Distinguished Service Cross. But here he was taking off, the, the taking the Distinguished Service Cross off other people under his command. So that's the second point. So he, he is not entitled to the Distinguished Service Cross. So what we're saying is, leave these people alone, put them into court or the appropriate tribunal. If they're guilty, then consider removing the, the Distinguished Service Cross. If they're not, leave them alone. So I also put to General Campbell that maybe he should consider resigning because of that, but also because under the Defence Forces, we've had a, an independent review so is he doing his job? But we've had an independent review into the Defence Forces, blowouts and budgets, blowout and timelines. Um, and, and then we've had the implementation given to an implementation, implementation task force, not to, not to the command, not to the chief of the Defence Forces. So does that mean he's irrelevant? So here he is 
break his, his, his award is breaking the, the, the rules. Um, he now wants to take it off without evidence being, take the award off people under his command. When he is actually responsible, he should be losing his, his award at the same time as they if he wants to do that, but he doesn't want to do that. That's highly inconsistent. That's demoralising. You know, when, when, when the top dog does not, does not suffer the consequences under his command, that, but the people under his command do suffer the consequences, that's demoralising. It's inconsistency. And one of the very, very important things and uniquenesses about Australia's military is a very strong sense of mateship and respect for the leaders. You know, that's, that's crucial. But people are losing respect for General uh, Angus Campbell because of these very things. And then, you know, there's, there's also a, a $400 million pool of money set aside for bonuses to, uh, to um, senior people, and, and servicemen rather, servicemen and women uh, for meritorious duty. These people are telling us they don't want bonuses. They just want to be left alone to do their damn job and take pride in doing their job. And, and that's what they want. They want to be valued as warriors because they're, they're defending our country. And so there seems to be a mismatch between the, the, the senior people and, and the people who, who do the, have the boots on the ground as to what their purpose is. And, you know, it, it reminds me of a story with British Leyland. British Leyland was uh, uh, amalgamated as a result, was formed uh, and, the, and the amalgamation of many different companies. Very proud British car manufacturers like Jaguar and Rover, they were all amalgamated into Leyland A and Leyland B. <laughs> so Michael Edwards, who came across from, yeah, I mean, it's just ridiculous. So Michael Edwards came across from Chloride Corporation in South Africa and was appointed chairman and CEO initially, I think, of, of, of British Leyland and got them back to their roots and got, you know, because People buy Jaguars because they want to be seen behind a Jaguar badge. They buy Rovers for the same reason. There's enormous pride in a worker building a Jaguar as opposed to, say, building a Morris or a, or a Hyundai. So these things are very, very important to the people in the SAS and the Second Commando. Um, and, and that seems to be going by the wayside. And, and I've, I've asked questions in the past about this. Our major strategic weapon in Australia is the high quality of our defence forces personnel I think and you're their right pride on that. in serving. They have I, enormous yes, pride. I think you're absolutely right in that. And if you go back to the First and Second World Wars and Korea and so on, uh, problems, problems were solved on the ground. Problems of discipline and so on were, were solved by the command structure. If there were a need for a court-martial, then it was the commander at the lower level going up who would order the court-martial. But in recent years, governments seem to have taken the view that you should centralise these things. And an amendment was made a few years ago to the Defence Act, setting up a director of military prosecutions. And you might remember there was a case a few years ago where some boys, some of our boys in Afghanistan were charged. They were charged because they were being, they were moving through one part of Afghanistan and they were fired on. And what did they do? They returned fire. Now that return fire struck people, uh, struck people, uh, civilians who were with the terrorists firing upon them. And naturally they, they were injured, but uh, what could the soldiers do but return fire? 
the director of military prosecutions, an official in Canberra, who I think had been in the reserve forces, she was a coroner from Darwin, she was the director of military prosecution, sitting in her air-conditioned office in Canberra, tried to recreate the circumstances and decided to issue four prosecutions against these soldiers who returned fire. And fortunately, in the first magisterial hearing, the, the, the officer in charge of that hearing decided that there was just no case to bring and it should be dismissed immediately. But that's the sort of thing, and I think we saw this with the Brereton Report, where you're trying to do an ex post facto uh, assessment of something which should have been looked after by the command structure. And uh, there's also a principle which, uh, which my colleague Alan Jones does refer to frequently, and that's the Yamashita standard, which is in the Geneva Protocols, and it says that the, the top commanders have a responsibility for improper things that are happening, even if they don't know about it, if they ought to have known about it, if they ought to have known that these things were happening, they're also responsible. And uh, is there some responsibility then for General Campbell in relation to what was happening? if it were happening in Afghanistan. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm absolutely sure that, that there is some responsibility. As a, as a miner, I learned about underground coal mining. As a mine manager, I learned about running a coal mine. And, and uh, you know, one of the things that, that I instilled in people who reported to me and the whole command structure of, of an underground coal mine, and while it's not the same as having people firing on, on right. you like, like our, our diggers have, it is still a matter of literally life and death. If someone breaks rules needlessly or negligently or irresponsibly, someone can die in an underground coal mine. It's that simple. Uh, and so, um, and, and, and you, have to have your, you have to go underground as a mine manager. You don't sit in an office, I didn't, many people do, but I went underground because you can see things that are missing uh, you can see things that that are there that shouldn't be there, and they give away they give away signals about what is happening when I'm not underground. So it's very important to be in the context. But you know, underground, it, it, it's very important to have standards. And and if I, as a mine manager or a general manager or an executive general manager, break the rules that I'm punishing other people for, the rules are worthless. So it's extremely important to be familiar with the rules the, ourselves, and it's familiar. It's very important, above all, that we comply with the same rules, and that, that's what's got to happen. Now, it, in, it's got more complicated these days, David, because in Afghanistan, we know that Australian lives were put at risk and were lost at the hands of Afghan insurgents who pretended to be Afghan trainees exactly. being supervised by exactly. our diggers. And so, and we have, we have children walking around with mobile phones, apparently, ready to dial a certain number that the Taliban have told them to dial. When they dial that number, it blows up a bunch of Australian soldiers or American soldiers. So that, that's, that's very, very important to understand. We've, we've got men dressed as women. So who the hell is, is your, your, um, your, your enemy in Afghanistan? But I, I think there's, there's something else more significant as well. Not only do the major not only do the generals need to be, be held accountable for all of this, I think our politicians need to be held accountable for it because 
Um, why were we in Afghanistan? We, we were sent to Iraq on the basis of weapons of mass destruction, which the American president, the Australian prime minister, the, the, chiefs, the chiefs of the defence forces in both countries admitted they never had evidence for, but they swore that we had evidence of those weapons of mass destruction when we marched in to an, a foreign country and invaded that country. So why were we putting these people at harm's way? Why were we putting them at harm's way and, and forcing them to comply with rules of engagement that the Taliban didn't comply with? Now, you, I'm sure you won't condone murder of innocent people, but what is the murder of an innocent person if that man who, who has been shot was dressed as a woman carrying landmines? You know, the rules of engagement have to be appropriate for the theatre of war, and that, that is determined by the politicians who go into that war. That we I, should never have gone into Iraq or Afghanistan, is my belief. Well, you, you do make very strong points. Can we in the last few minutes that we have, can we go to another matter? I'd like to stay on this, but we, we can't afford to. Uh, can I go to another matter? And that's the voice. Now, uh, my <laughs> producer, who's a very good young man, Charlie Noble, my producer, when, uh, when it became impossible to refer to uh, the voice as a third chamber, he said, well, uh, isn't it a a fourth branch of government, a fourth branch of government. He, he's the one who started that uh, line, which I think brilliantly sums up what this is. It's to put a new chapter in the Constitution, which the High Court will see as a green light. They won't, uh, they won't take much notice of a particular uh, government lawyer saying it's not justiciable. As Ian Callanan says, the question whether something is justiciable is in fact itself justiciable. That is, judges can make decisions on it. It's not something they can't touch. Well, Charlie Noble says it's a, a fourth branch of government. It'll be a fourth branch of government. Do you see it that way? Yes, I do. But I, I see it as, as far more. I, I, I made a list and I, I got to about 11 points in, in preparing for this uh, discussion, David. Now, you're, you're eminently qualified to discuss the Constitution, much more qualified than I am. And, and I, I respect you enormously for what you've done with our Constitution and your protection of our Constitution particularly. Uh, and your discussion of that in public, I really admire you for that. And the Constitution, as, as I see it, is, is the sovereign entity in our country, the, 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 um, the crown, the, the king or queen, actually serves the constitution. They serve the constitutional monarchy. So they don't reign over us. Our constitution is the only constitution in the world, to my knowledge, in which the people have voted for the constitution. The only one. It's a people's constitution. If we change this constitution in the way the voice is, is being promoted, we will make it a politician's constitution. And now we have the Prime Minister saying that if the referendum fails, and he must be getting worried to admit that, uh, then he will enact legislation. That is so, so disrespectful to the people. If the people go against it, he will still legislate it. So, but I think there is one key word, the first word in my, in my list. By the way, I will show this article. It's an excellent article from uh, Paul Kelly in the Weekend Australian on Saturday the 27th of May. Deception is no path to reconciliation. The key word for me with the voice is deception, deceit. It's all based upon not telling people what the reality is, not telling people the truth, not giving people the details, 
not even presenting those details of the constitutional change and adding a whole new chapter, as you point out, but hiding all the details. The second thing is that it is racist. It is inherently racist. We got away from that. Now, you'll correct me on this. And, and 67 referendum, certainly in the 60s it was. We got away from racism. Now the Labor Party wants to bring racism back. The third thing, and arguably this is the most important, is that it will be very bad for the Aboriginal people. It will entrench the Aboriginal industry. The, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders Commission was riddled with corruption, did enormous damage to the, to the Aboriginal people, the Aboriginal communities. They finally got rid of that, the Liberal National Party, plucked up the courage to do that in, in early 2000s, and that was commendable. Now they're wanting to bring it back, but the same people behind the Aboriginal uh, and Torres Strait Islanders Commission are now behind the voice, and what they're wanting to do is to entrench it, because the ATSIC uh, Commission was abolished by, by repealing the legislation. You won't be able to repeal uh, this, this voice if it's entrenched in the Constitution, but it'll be, it, this is all about power, to the elites amongst the Aboriginal industry. And, and I'm not, uh, by that well, I mean I'm sure black you're and white I'm sure you're absolutely right. It's the establishment, the Aboriginal establishment who have failed to do anything about the gap. They, they had the power, many they of them were- They perpetrated the gap. Yes, yes, I agree with you. In fact, there's a piece by a man called, I, I think it's Ian Tusk in this morning's Australian, uh, that's uh, Australian Today, and uh, he, he points out that the turning points were, uh, as, uh, as we've stated, that uh, the segregation, the, the remoteness, setting them up as remote societies, and then the basic wage, introducing the basic wage immediately, which destroyed the, the graziers couldn't pay because they were maintaining all of the family uh, when they brought uh, people in. And uh, the other thing was, that, turning them into welfare dependence, the enormous amount of welfare dependency that uh, the Whitlam government introduced. It's all in this morning's Australia. He's in favour of the voice, mind you, but uh, I think he made a very good point there. You know, I, I've been to all the, the, the uh, Cape York communities, black, white, mixed, whatever. I've been to all of them several times now. And last time I went to the Torres Strait as well, and the previous time I went to the Torres Strait as well. And I can remember, a, local councilman up in uh, up in the Torres Strait Islands, I can't remember, Badu was it? I, I can't remember the, the exact name of the island. But every community I said, what do, what do you think about this closing the gap? And most had never even heard of it. Those that had just didn't think it was anything of, of particular significance at all, nothing meaningful to them. And, and, and when I watch, anyway, I'll get to the point of the story. The Badu councillor, or the councillor, he looked at me and said, it's there to perpetuate the gap. And he said it with enormous disrespect and confidence, enormous respect and confidence. He said, Senator, it is there to perpetuate the gap. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, if there's no gap, you miss out on the Aboriginal and white consultants, activists, lawyers, bureaucrats, politicians feeding off this. And he said, the gap is there to be perpetuated so that they can keep their little industry going. They're, they're his words. But the, the voice is also... What a wise uh, man. Divisive. What a wise man. It will lead to, yes, very, very divisive. It's, it won't really lead to reconciliation. It will entrench uh, division within the country, racist-based division. Um, what will it cost? 
Exactly. No one knows. It'll be highly expensive because it's an open check. And not only the direct cost will be, will be huge, but the indirect cost will be enormous. It is unbounded. Um, then I, I saw Senator Nampajimpa Price. Most people know her as Jacinta Price. What a wonderful woman she is. Uh, she and Pauline are a breath of fresh air in that Senate, along with um, Karen Little, South Australian uh, um, Aboriginal Senator as well. Uh, but Jacinta Price, Nampajimpa Price, she was questioning <laughs> poor, poor old Senator Malandiri McCarthy, who I like, she's a lovely woman, um, about the Uluru Statement and Senate estimates in February. And I was sitting next to Nampa Jimpa Price and, uh, and she was asking about the, the origins of the Uluru Statement. And, and uh, Malandiri McCarthy said, well, the, the, they were elected, the, the representatives on, the, on the, uh, the committee to write the Uluru Statement were elected. And Nampa Jimpa Price said, well, my family's in central Queensland. We didn't get any say in the election. <laughs> and, and, she just, and she just hounded Melandiri McCarthy and said, what is the basis of the Uluru Statement? And in the end, Melandiri McCarthy got so frustrated, Senator McCarthy just said, ultimately, it's hope. There's no basis, David, no basis for the Uluru mm. Statement. Well, there are reports that it was concocted in Zaire and imported here from Zaire. Yes, well, uh, I think on that point, uh, unfortunately, we have to conclude because of time constraints. But I think that's a very important thing. It's just based on hope. Well, uh, Senator, you've been very generous <laughs> with your time. Thank you very much. And uh, this is Save the Nation on ADH TV, and I'm David Flint. Thank you, Senator, and until next time. <laughs>